Welcome to the Nutrition-ish Podcast, the place for all things nutrition and mindfulness. We are passionate about guiding you to make peace with food and empower your body and brain. I'm one of your hosts, Allie Hobson. I'm an NTP, Nutritional Therapy Practitioner in San Diego. I work with individuals to assess personal nutritional deficiencies and imbalances by addressing the root cause of any health issue. In my private practice, I focus on women's hormones, gut health, and thyroid dysfunction. Let's meet my co-host. I'm Chelsea Gross, a certified transformational nutrition coach based in Los Angeles. I work one-on-one with women who are ready to break free from dieting, make peace with food, and create a life they love filled with energy, self-love, and freedom from rules and obsession. I'm also the creator of the ebook, Break Free from Disordered Eating. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining and should not replace medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. We are so excited you're here. Let's get to the episode. You're listening to episode 37 of the Nutrition-ish podcast. Hello. You guys get me, Allie, for one more episode all by myself, well, minus our guest, So we're going to keep the pregnancy theme kind of going here. Last week, we talked with my good friend Tessa Bowman, and we talked about everything preconception, planning for pregnancy, where to start, what to do. We talked about fertility testing, non-toxic practices with living and nursery stuff. So if you haven't listened to that, definitely go check it out. And then this episode, I get to interview another amazing expert. Her name is Lily Nichols. And she wrote probably one of my like hands down favorite pregnancy resource books called Real Food for Pregnancy. Everything in her book is all science based. I'll kind of read her bio a little bit to give you more information about her, where she comes from. But we debunk all of the myths, um, including things like, is it okay to eat raw egg yolks? And what about deli meat? So all of these kind of questions that have come up in my personal experience, I really wanted to interview her and get her expert opinion because she comes from more of like a functional nutrition primal background. So Lily Nichols, as I mentioned, she's a registered dietitian. She's a nutritionist. She's a certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author. She has a passion for evidence-based prenatal nutrition. So drawing from the current scientific literature literature and wisdom of traditional cultures, her work is known for being research-focused, thorough, and sensible. Her best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, an online course, presents a revolutionary nutrition nutrient-dense, lower-carb approach for managing gestational diabetes. Her work has not only helped tens of thousands of women manage their gestational diabetes, and most without the need for blood sugar-lowering medication, which is great, but has also influenced nutrition policies internationally. Lily's clinical expertise and extensive background in prenatal nutrition have made her a highly sought-after consultant and speaker in this field. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy which is what we're going to talk about today, outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides the evidence. There's actually 930 citations and counting that support a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. So I'll give you tons more information. She'll tell us where you can find out more about her, but let's jump right into the interview with Lily Nichols. Welcome, Lily Nichols, to the Nutrition-ish podcast. Um, I'm recording solo um, without my co-host, Chelsea, this morning, but we I am so beyond excited to have you on because I am, let's see, when this 
episode will come out. I'll probably be maybe like 23, 24 weeks pregnant, but your book has single-handedly led me through my entire pregnancy and before. <laughs> Any questions wow. I ever have, I go through it. Any questions that I'm like, oh, I don't know, I'm getting mixed answers. I'm like, oh, whatever, I'll just listen to what Lily says because she knows. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on our podcast. We're so excited to have you. Um, I wanted to just start out with kind of how did you get into preconception, pre and postnatal, which I know you do as well. And how did your life's passion and focus get to this point in writing this book? Yeah, it's kind of a, a long story. I'll try to keep it brief, but my, my career as a dietitian has spanned from nutrition, public policy, gestational diabetes, uh, to consulting and research. And I don't think I need to go through all the various places that I worked working in all those roles, but ultimately it was in working in this field for a while that I saw that, uh, you know, the U.S. government dietary guidelines or conventional prenatal dietary advice doesn't necessarily reflect the latest scientific evidence. Um, and it's much different than the kinds of foods that would have been consumed by traditional cultures. And a lot of what led to my big passion in this work was working clinically with gestational diabetes and seeing how poorly the conventional dietary advice worked for managing blood sugar. Um, a lot of times my clients' blood sugar would actually get worse once they started following the gestational diabetes diet. And the only way they could get around that was to uh, just like starve themselves, basically, to try to just eat a lesser quantity of the kinds of foods that were in the recommendations. So I, it really led me to wonder, you know, did they fail diet therapy or did diet therapy fail them? Like what was going wrong here? Um, so ultimately that led me to do a lot of research into why the guidelines are what they are, how they could be improved, and if it would be safer to potentially say eat not 45 to 65% of your <laughs> diet as <laughs> carbohydrates. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and led me to um, developing my real food approach for managing gestational diabetes and my first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And then, you know, years down the line, uh, that led me to write my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, because I was getting a lot of uh, outreach from clinicians who wanted, you know, evidence-based prenatal nutrition advice uh, that wasn't all focused on blood sugar regulation. And of course, a lot of the same advice that applies to gestational diabetes can be generalized to all pregnant women and preconception and postpartum. And so that really was what, what led me to write the second book was to finally have an evidence-based resource on prenatal nutrition that wasn't just spouting out the tired old guidelines that are contradictory to a lot of modern nutrition research. I couldn't agree more because I, I mean, I tried not to, I think when you're in the health space and as a nutritionist, you can kind of go off the deep end into like researching so much that you really get into the weeds. And so I kind of went into pregnancy a little bit, I mean, prepared on everything that I knew, but I tried not to dig too deep into like all the crazy things. Cause there's just so many myths out there that are not true. And I feel like there's almost like this scare tactic that happens. Like, don't do this, yes. don't do this. And it's like, even with working out and all these things, it's like, yes, you have to be very careful and you have to be, you know, very conscious of what you're doing with your body. But there's probably more harm, I think, out there in a lot of the books that I've kind of come across and decided not to read because 
of the scare tactics and the things that like make you so nervous that that's like elevating cortisol and making your any condition worse. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, then you could start reading the research on cortisol and pregnancy and how that's not good. I know. It really, I think what bothered me the most about a lot of the prenatal nutrition books or guidelines or pamphlets or whatever that you find is they're kind of, they're kind of condescending. They're kind of talking down to you as if like, oh, these poor women can't make educated decisions for themselves. Let's just boil it down into these very basic talking points, you know, lowest common denominator. And it's not helpful. And honestly, it's kind of offensive. You know, you're telling me not to eat deli meat like why can't I eat deli meat what's the research on it how likely am I really to get sick from eating deli meat like there's no additional facts given with the recommendations and it's really frustrating (laughs) so right that's not science-based which is what I think is so important about your book and it's it's science-based and so you go through like looking in the back of your book um I probably could tell you how many well you could tell me how many pages but there's so many sites that you um you know, refer to as like, this is the research of where I got it from. It's your citing your sources, which I think is the most important right. thing because the hard thing about pregnancy that I've kind of come across and we kind of chatted a little bit before, but I had some kind of questions that I was like, Oh, I wonder what she thinks about certain foods like this or like that, um, that are like totally random one-off things, but no, there's not a lot of studies of like, here, let's see if this is safe for pregnancy and right. we'll have all these pregnant women volunteer. But if it isn't, sorry. <laughs> Like it's just, right. right? There's not very many, um, it's hard. It's hard. It takes a lot of digging. And I think I realized for myself during my pregnancy with my son, you know, everybody just keeps saying, do your research, do your research, do your research. (laughs) Not everybody has the skill or the time or the interest to do their own research. And that's kind of an unfair burden to put on women. Like, sorry, but shouldn't the guidelines that you're giving me be providing me with the research you know what I mean like are we really expecting everybody to dig through PubMed and make sense of these really complicated studies and most people yeah most people won't go to PubMed if I if you google anything as it relates to pregnancy most often I feel like the first thing that comes up are comments and questions or like um I don't even know what the right word is, but all these different types of pregnant women sharing their personal experience on like what to expect.com. Like someone will post a comment and then it's like reading all the comments and it's like, okay, you're never going to find a right answer through that. But that's what a lot of people look at. They take the majority of what people say who have no (laughs) background in nutrition or health education at all. And you're like, oh, okay, I'm not going to do it because, you know, so-and-so from Alabama said I shouldn't and this happened to her in a comment. (laughs) And then on the flip side, you know, the just trust your clinician, well, not all clinicians receive nutrition education, or if they receive nutrition education, I mean, I could say it as a registered dietitian, like, (laughs) it might not be up up to date evidence based information. I mean, a lot of what we're taught as dietitians is to just follow the guidelines and here are the guidelines. And then you look at the evidence they use to set the guidelines and you're like, what? Yeah, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think anything any physician ever tells you, my rule of thumb is question it for one, no matter how much you trust them and do your own research. I mean, the, to the best of your ability. But I remember the first time when I was coming off of the birth control pill and I was seeing a different um, OB at the time, he was like, well, you know, 
just if it doesn't, if, if your cycle doesn't come back within three months, we can put you back on the pill again. But in the meantime, like start taking these prenatals. And I was like, I never even said that I was trying to get pregnant. I literally just wanted to come off the pill in order to get pregnant at some point. And he gave me, cause I found them underneath my sink, maybe like six months ago. And the ingredients for the prenatal that he had given me were probably the worst ingredients that I've ever seen. Not to mention they had folic acid which we know folate is what your body needs to process. So it was just kind of like, had I not really gone into this and yes, this is my field to question things and research, but you just can't really trust the evidence that your doctor, just because your doctor says doesn't mean that it's like end all. Yeah. <laughs> Only a quarter of medical schools in the U S provide any nutrition course whatsoever. And those that do, it's usually just one three credit course, one semester, which is just teaching them the government dietary guidelines. So, right. you know, it's, it's hard. Some, some clinicians have really done a lot of extra coursework and have done extra training or have a personal interest and that's fabulous, but the vast majority don't, they're too busy. I mean, the way that our medical system is run, you have like 10 to 15 minute appointments and you just got to keep going, going, going through your whole day. So they don't have the time to sit down and do the research either. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wouldn't have had the time to write either of my books if I was working a super busy practice at the time. I was intentionally keeping my client load really low so I could spend all the time researching. Like you can't do all the things. This is why yeah. we need people to, to do the research and write about it. Right. And it's not their fault. I always want to come back to that and say that any doctor or clinician that is doing their job, I mean, like you said, it's not their fault that they don't know these things. It's not their specialty. It's not what they focus on. Right. So that's why it's so important to like arm yourself with books like yours, um, you know, nutritionists, registered dietitians like yourself who actually specialize in this and kind of diversify your arsenal and your team. Cause I think that's what pregnancy is about. At least what I found is getting a really good team of resources, whether that's people, books, um, you know, everything like that to kind of get a variety of answers. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so people that you work with, work with, and just out of curiosity, what are the, um, types of clients that you normally see kind of on your own? Are you still taking on clients and focusing in this area or how does that right work now, for you right now? Yeah, right now I'm not taking on one-on-one -on -one clients, but, um, previously a lot of the people who would seek out my help were dealing with blood sugar issues during pregnancy. Um, so gestational diabetes or a different type of diabetes in pregnancy. Uh, and then the uber proactive, I want to do everything within my control to have the healthiest possible pregnancy. You know, people would come to me with like a, a list of like 20 supplements they're taking and <laughs> they're already eating nutrient dense foods and they're trying to optimize. That was like the other, the other group. Um, prior to like private practice client work, you know, I got my start clinically working in a very low income area of Los Angeles um, in a, in a prenatal perinatology office that focused on gestational diabetes. And so, you know, totally different client population. <laughs> so a lot of those women were receiving like WIC benefits, um, you know, working multiple jobs, night shifts, like in oftentimes in very tough, you know, food insecurity and financial situations. Um, and so it was a totally different a group of people where we were just focusing on sort of correcting some of the misinformation they had gotten from WIC. Yes, you can eat the egg yolks and you should. Uh, these are the things that you should look for with your benefits. Give away the uh, what is honey, honey, nut, honey nut Cheerios, I think they'd give out. Give your honey nut Cheerios to another family member. <laughs> yeah. 
see if you can get the you know whole fat milk instead of low fat because they have all these weird rules with WIC around that stuff. So a totally different population, but at, I think the the underlying theme is that most women, regardless of their their economic status, really do want to do the best they can for their babies. So I feel like my role has often been encouraging the least processed foods and the most nutrient dense foods. And then also just informed consent around a variety of, of topics related to, to pregnancy health, but mostly to nutrition. And how early do you typically recommend if someone, I mean, ideally if you're planning for pregnancy and you have the time to kind of go back and say, all right, for the next however many months or even a year, I'm going to plan and prep for pregnancy, what is your recommendation if someone has that opportunity to plan ahead? When do you start? So the biggest bang for your buck is in the three to four months leading up to conception. That makes a big difference in egg quality and sperm quality. So I, I say both because it's both partners. Like you can influence the, the epigenetics, like how this embryo, future embryo, and which is developing into a baby, like how that whole process goes by being really nutrient replete leading up to it. And then managing your stress levels, being active, so like your metabolic health is good, um, working on your blood sugar regulation, so that's all good because that plays a big role in, in the success of pregnancy, working on your thyroid, if, if you're even identifying a thyroid issue pre-pregnancy is like <laughs> doing 99% better than most, most people are able to do. All that stuff is fantastic to identify beforehand. I give like the three to four month window as a minimum, um, definitely not a maximum. Like the longer that you're following a generally healthy nutrient dense diet and doing all these, these things to support your overall hormonal health and minimizing toxins and sleeping plenty and all that stuff, that technically should be a priority for all of us just for our own well being. So as long as you can do that stuff beforehand, great. If it's been, a year or two years or 10 years, fantastic, even, even more important, but you can make a big difference if it's just a couple of months. Good. And I love they point out the, the other half, <laughs> the other 50% that makes the baby, yeah. because I think that's the hardest, not the hardest part, but it's just something that I think we're, like our society is so like women, women need to do this and women need to do that. It's like, no, until there's actually a baby <laughs> growing in right. you. He is 50% of that equation, and it's so important. Absolutely. And they are show, they are doing studies on epigenetics related to sperm health and sperm mm -hmm. morphology. And, you know, over the last 50 years, the sperm count and the quantity of healthy sperm in a sperm sample has actually been going down. So that, like, male fertility is also being affected by all of this junk in our environment and you know not eating well and, and all of these factors just as much as it's affecting egg quality so we can't can't leave them out of the equation right they're not exempt so everybody needs to buy two copies of lily's book <laughs> one for your partner and one for yourself <laughs> or just just recite it to your husband yeah uh, do a lot of that i actually well i did do a little bit of that um in the beginning and he was very he's very receptive to a lot of things, but he's also, he's, 
he's interesting because he needs to know the science behind it. And I was like, well, this is really good because after, you know, I kind of read some of these good for the engineer types, right? Yeah, exactly. And so he was like, okay, if you can prove things to me scientifically, then he's kind of more on board. So I think this is like for those men who think that way. Mm-hmm. And women, it's just a, it's a good, a good resource. I will say my husband did the, uh, when we recorded the audiobook this summer, he did the, the quality assurance checking on it. So he, he listened to the whole thing for me. I was like, I can't listen to myself talk for 13 hours, please right. help me with this. Um, he's like, well, I actually learned a lot. I was like, yeah. Oh, good. I'm not listening to what I say, apparently. <laughs> I know. There's some things I'll tell him like over and over and over again. And I'm literally like, I, you know how many times I've told you this? He's like, okay, well, after the 10th time, then it sinks in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, well, I want to jump to, we kind of touched on it or you touched on it a little bit with the deli meats, but speaking of myths and old science when it comes to food during pregnancy, this is a big topic. Um, so I just wanted to talk about some quick fire, maybe questions I'll run through the short list of things that I come across the most often or things that people ask me about. Um, and just kind of curious about what your thoughts are (laughs) on all of these food items. So for the one is, uh, runny eggs, uh, raw dairy, raw fish and sushi, deli meat, um, and then sausages. Um, I know there's a lot, I mean, cause I'm kind of speaking to more of the um, maybe like holistic primal kind of group or listener base that we have. Um, like Epic bars, for example, like those are, you know, something that I've been like, Hmm, I wonder <laughs> or jerky. So those are kind of my short list, but if you want to touch on any of those topics, that would be wonderful. Yeah. So the food safety conversation is always controversial and I try to approach it somewhat carefully in in the book because I don't think you can ever say for sure something is going to be safe or something is going to be unsafe. Um, but what I do think we need to balance in terms of you must avoid these foods because there's a chance you could get food poisoning. That's why most of these things are, are on the list. We have to take into consideration what happens when you don't eat those foods. Like, are you risking nutrient deficiencies if you don't eat the foods? So some of them, it's not a huge deal if you don't eat food. Deli meat, for example, like if you have other sources of animal protein in your diet, you're, you're like, you're not going to die of a nutrient <laughs> deficit from not eating deli meat. Um, maybe if you're in a period of like severe food aversions or something, and that's the only type of animal protein that tastes good, maybe it's a different conversation. Um, but something like raw eggs, if you say you're a person who only likes to eat your eggs sunny side up or over easy, so with runny yolks, and you're told that you can't eat that, well, if that makes you decide not to eat eggs whatsoever, there's actually a lot of nutrients you could be deficient in, most notably choline, because that's going to be the major source of choline in our diet by far. Egg eaters have double the choline intake of non-egg eaters, and already like 94% of pregnant women don't consume enough choline. It's vital to brain development. It's vital to the prevention of neural tube defects, arguably just as much as folate. So choline is super important. And yet if you take this piece of advice and then you don't eat eggs, like you could run into an issue. Maybe that's not an issue for somebody who likes scrambled. Sure, fine. Um, But then you're like the person who's allergic to eggs. I think that's a case where a choline supplement makes really good sense. In addition to a prenatal. 
Mm -hmm. Because most prenatals don't have choline or don't have it in sufficient amounts. So mm -hmm. at minimum, pregnant women need 450 milligrams per day. If you look at, there's some recent randomized controlled trials that supplemented women with 480, so just above the 450 mark versus 930, so more than double what our current recommendation is. And then they tested infant outcomes um, in terms of like reaction time and like memory processing and all of that stuff at different points in infancy and toddlerhood. At all time points, the kids from the high choline consumption group scored significantly better. Mm. It just is vitally important. And our choline recommendations were set based on data from adult men and then adjusted for pregnancy. So we don't really know 450 milligrams is adequate. It's like a good, good ballpark to, to go for, right. but we have data showing us that double that is better. Mm -hmm. So food sources of choline are just hard because it's not super concentrated in a lot of foods. It is spread throughout the food supply in small amounts, but it's most concentrated in egg yolks and liver even though liver is like very high in choline, you literally can't consume enough of it, nor would it be advisable to consume like mass quantities of liver. I think liver is right. fantastic and I recommend it, but you're not going to be eating a huge quantity of it just to meet your choline needs. I think that would be impossible and you'd be overdoing some nutrients by doing so. Mm -hmm. So it really brings it back to eggs. And then beyond that, like the next food sources have like a fifth of the choline of what you find in eggs. Right. So for people who can't do eggs, I do think choline, the choline supplement is wise. Um, to bring it back to the food safety thing, just to wrap up this quick point on the eggs, I think the other thing we need to consider on any of these foods is like, how likely are you actually to get food poisoning from any given food. So with eggs, the chances that an egg contains salmonella, which is the bacteria we're most worried about when it comes to raw eggs, it's one in 12,000 eggs to one in 30,000 eggs. Wow. So very, very rare that you're going to come in contact with an egg that's contaminated. We also know that if you source eggs from chickens that were raised organically and especially on pasture, so they're outside and pecking around and not in an overcrowded, unsanitary barn, the chances the egg contains salmonella is sevenfold lower than those statistics. So very, very rare and even more rare if you get really good quality eggs. So that's something where I'm like, nah, I would rather just eat my eggs over easy and be done with it. If you're really right. concerned, then sure, go for scrambled eggs or, you know, eggs, hard, hard boiled eggs or something. That's totally fine. You still get all the choline. All is good. I think it's really mostly an issue when people aren't given the full information about it. You hear like, oh my God, eggs are unsafe. <laughs> Instead of hearing <laughs> eggs with runny yolks have a one in 30,000 chance or maybe lower than that of giving me salmonella right. and giving you the options to make an informed decision. Like what about if you're out at a restaurant and choosing like a Caesar salad, for example, that might have raw eggs in it at that point, because you don't have any idea what that restaurant is using in terms of their quality. Is it best to stay, stay away from raw eggs in those types of products? If you're not kind of cooking it yourself. I don't do see, see I mean, if they're making, if they're making their Caesar salad dressing there themselves, you can buy Caesar salad dressing like, bottled, which I would expect most restaurants to do, in which case the eggs are pasteurized in it and it's right. a non-issue. So you could ask them about it. And if that is a concern, then yeah, opt for a different salad dressing. That's totally fine. Um, 
you're probably more likely to get sick from the lettuce, to be honest, because like <laughs> half, half of foodborne illnesses in the U.S. are related to raw fruits and vegetables, mostly fruit and leafy greens. So like your salad greens. So that's just the like, that's just to play devil's advocate. There's no food that's guaranteed safe or unsafe. So we get all worried about some of these particular foods where when cutting them out, we're risking all sorts of nutrient deficiencies. But then we give these other foods the past when they could make us sick just the same or maybe worse or, you know, the stats are it's more likely you're going to get sick from leafy greens than you are from eggs. So mm-hmm. <laughs> nobody tells you to avoid salad though, or spinach or something like sure. that. So you just have to be, you know, smart about food safety. I think, I think you're right in that, you know, thinking about the Caesar salad, like, okay, I don't know the sourcing of this. I don't know how it's handled. Maybe I'm not going to risk exposing myself to raw or undercooked egg in this setting. But maybe you'd make a different choice if you knew the source of the eggs and you're, you know, having it yourself in the morning cooked sunny side up, right? Then you know the sourcing, you know the handling of it. That's a a safer decision from from a food safety perspective. Got it. And then raw dairy, raw fish, any, any thoughts on either of those? So raw dairy is, I think, one that you can argue either way. Um, the thing with raw dairy in the U.S. nowadays is they're under such strict scrutiny that most raw dairy operations operate so cleanly because they're regularly having inspections to see that they're not harboring listeria or other E. coli or other bad bacteria. So there's a study I mentioned in the book on a um, a survey of raw dairy farms, artisan cheese producers in Vermont. This was even during the summer. And they didn't find a single sample from any of these operations positive for any of the bacteria, um, pathogenic bacteria they were screening for. I think a lot of it with raw dairy just comes down to the operation. If you know the operation, you know they operate cleanly, you know that their animals are not in confinement, which really that's one of the big issues with animals. You put them in confinement and they're just spreading disease like crazy because they're, they're, they're laying in their own excrement. You know, it's Mm -hmm. obviously a problem for spreading disease and bacteria when they're out in the pasture, their diet's more balanced. They're not pooping all in the same place and then laying in it they're not gonna be spreading as much disease. It also comes down to the handling. How, how well are they cleaning the udders before they milk them? How are they storing the milk? How are they handling it? How are they processing it into cheese? Like a lot of this stuff comes down to the operation itself. So I'd recommend you know, knowing your farmer if you're gonna opt for, for raw dairy products, if you don't know the farmer or don't know like the brand, because there are some good nat- national brands of raw cheeses available that I'd feel comfortable with like organic valley and stuff yeah that's the one that i've seen mostly in grocery stores that if i was going to buy it um that would be what i think most people would probably pick up. i think i think it's ultimately less risky than we're led to believe um when you look at the outbreaks of foodborne illness most of them are related to pasteurized dairy you know pasteurizing it kills off the bacteria at that time but it can still become contaminated right at a later point And in fact, it's more likely to become contaminated at a later point because the pasteurization process killed off the native enzymes and probiotic bacteria that tend to protect against pathogens from developing in the cheese or whatever product it is. So again, it comes down to like 
what's going to make you most comfortable from like your like anxiety perspective. Do yes. you know the handler? Um, do you trust the source? And what are, what's the relative risk? Um, so I think that's arguable <laughs> from, from yeah. all of those points. Um, the raw fish question is interesting because when you look at other countries, they actually don't tell you not to eat sushi and raw fish. I was really surprised to find on the NHS website, so, you know, in the UK official guidelines that uh, it's safe to have sushi during pregnancy as long as you're getting it from a reputable establishment, meaning the food, the handling of it was, was good. Um, and the rationale is that seafood marketed for human consumption goes under pretty strict microbial screening um, and is often flash frozen for several weeks at a time before it's um, delivered to these establishments, which kills off a lot of pathogenic things, especially like parasites and other things you might be worried about. So they don't recommend strictly avoiding it, which is kind of surprising. And then of course you go to a number of Asian countries and they're regularly consuming raw fish. So again, I think that one is just a matter of like, do you know the source? How fresh is the fish? How was it handled? Are you eating it immediately? Like leftover sushi is obviously a bad idea, <laughs> you know, yeah. common food safety um, approach to the whole thing. But yeah, if you know the source and you feel comfortable with it, I, it, it's really rare that you'd actually get sick from it. So. Makes sense to me. <laughs> um, and then, I mean, we kind of covered the other ones um, with jerky, epic bars, those type of things. Cause I feel like the, um, some of the things that I've heard, um, are that, okay, sausages and hot dogs, those are not ideal. But then if you cook them to a certain, you know, degree, and then it's, you know, kind of heating off any type of contamination yet, right. is jerky the same thing? Is that fine? Or what do so you So the concern over, the concern over deli meat as a whole, and I, I don't think this technically includes jerky or things like Epic bars necessarily um, because those are dried out. So like a lot of the growth of pathogenic bacteria with deli meat, we're concerned about listeria specifically. There has to be a certain amount of water in the product for the bacteria to grow. So mm. I'm not sure to be honest, whether jerky or something like an Epic bar could even harbor listeria that's a good question yeah. well i've been um, eating epic bars so and i seem to be fine yeah, I, I mean i personally <laughs> eat a bunch of jerky during my pregnancy so yeah i mean whatever. it's a good source of protein but, on the go you know <laughs> yeah but just from like the fda um research they estimate one case of listeria per eighty-three thousand servings of deli meat in pregnant women so yeah. even with the deli meat like the relative risk is pretty low yeah. i think with the dried meats it would relate to how it was processed. I'm pretty sure the um, the ones that are like, you know, big national brands that are marketed, they probably have it down to a science, the temperature that they dry things at. But if you're doing like home jerky drying, you definitely want to use a um, like a dehydrator or an oven where you can actually calibrate the temperature because you do want to make sure that it gets up to temperature and then it's dried to a certain point. Once the water activity is really low, it's preserved. So I think you're good. Yeah, That's so interesting. I didn't know that about the water, but that makes sense. Again, when you know the science, you're like, oh yes, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Um, okay, so you do a really good job of listing out essential nutrients as well in this book, which I love because I think supplements are kind of one of those things people are like, well, what should I take? What are the essentials? Um, but I mean, you mentioned things like, uh, um, you know, fish oils, vitamin D and their roles in the body for mom and baby, um, which is one of my favorite things, again, as you talk about the roles and why they're so important, like choline, for example, with the neural tube defects, that's so important. Um, but one thing that I did want to talk about, which you did bring up, um, very dear <laughs> to my heart, is thyroid. So yes. I have Hashimoto's and I've had or I've known about it probably since 2012, 2013. Um, it didn't really become an issue until my hormones were being affected by that. So I have been religiously testing my thyroid, you know, and know to do that because I'm also on a bioidentical hormone. So my thyroid has never, ever really been regulated up until pregnancy, which is something that I'll kind of go into more in my other question, um, because your immune system essentially can kind of shut down and go to sleep. So it's not as reactive. But um, I, the first thing that I did, even before I told my husband that we were pregnant, <laughs> was I tested my TSH level and I tested my thyroid like literally the next day because I knew that from reading your book, actually, that HCG and TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone, can actually compete for one another. And it kind of just makes sense that if you're growing another human, your thyroid gland is might, you know, might be compromised. It's going to have to work harder. So my TSH, when I checked it the very next day was way too high. Um, so I immediately was like, okay, this is good. I'm only about four weeks. I can, you know, bump up my bioidentical hormones, all of that. Um, but do you agree that kind of keeping that range, if you are someone that is dealing with, um, either Hashimoto's or hypothyroid that, getting your TSH checked on your own. Cause that's also something that by the time you have your first appointment with your doctor, that's like four to six weeks. And yeah. there are a lot of unfortunate situations. Miscarriages can be contributed back to thyroid and maybe you never even know you had an issue, but keeping that right. range, that TSH below 2.5 is kind of where I've felt comfortable in, in my research, research and from the, you know, practitioners that I've been working with. But um, can you talk a little bit more about the importance for thyroid and having, you know, to get that regulated when you're conceiving before conception and then maybe a little bit about the foods that can kind of contribute? Or yeah. Yeah. If you are, and really interesting hearing your story, by the way, because autoimmunity is kind of like a it's a toss up when it comes to pregnancy. Some people's autoimmune conditions get worse and some people's get better. It's like bizarre how the immune system responds. Yeah. Um, it's been, my TSH has literally been like 1.2 the entire time once I got it down, but that was the hardest part about figuring out how to get it down to that perfect number. Yeah. I mean, in perfect, there is no perfect. I just wanted it below 2.5, but my doctor originally- How much did said, you have to ramp up your dosage? I'm curious. Yeah. So I, um, at the time I was just taking 60 milligrams of, um, of w, or yeah, WP thyroid. And then, so the issue was- um, long story short, I'll try. So I was taking just 60 milligrams essentially of the, um, WP and my TSH was like, when I got pregnant, I don't know what it was. It was probably maybe in the twos, the threes. I mean, I assume it had to be there to actually get pregnant, but when I first checked it, it was 4.7. And so that was right after I was about four weeks and it was 4.7 and I kind of freaked out and I was like, okay, so <laughs> went back to the drawing board. I had to bump it up all said and done. And this was 
yes, working with a doctor, but I really had to, luckily I work for a doctor. And so with her kind of trial and error, and I really just put my hands up and said, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do it because she's like a thyroid expert. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to add, um, another, I had, I ended up adding Synthroid, which Mm -hmm. I was kind of against at the time because I didn't want to take anything synthetic, but for a lot of pregnancy, T4 can be really important if that's what your body needs, but it's also more stable in some cases for pregnancy. So I was like, you know what, I'm going to go with something that's synthetic. I know exactly how much I'm getting. So I added, I think 35 micrograms of Synthroid. Mm -hmm. And then I also switched to Natrothroid, which Mm -hmm. is 65 milligrams Mm -hmm. because this whole, I couldn't compound anything. There's a worldwide shortage of porcine, like literally everywhere. And so I couldn't compound anything that was going to be the right dosage. It was like this nightmare. (laughs) Wow. To the pharmacy being like, okay, I can't get this. And now I can't get this. What do I do? So I ended up basically being, now I'm on 65 of Natrothroid and about 35 of um, Synthroid. Yeah. And it often is a matter of just stabilizing it in the first trimester. Like the thyroid undergoes, just so everybody else (laughs) knows what we're talking about here. So your thyroid gland is uh, a very important gland in regulating your metabolism, but it also interacts with a number of different systems in your body. And during pregnancy, your thyroid gland has to produce uh, 50% more thyroid hormone. So your thyroid gland is under a lot of stress. It's a lot of work (laughs) to provide enough thyroid hormone. And it's also shunting a lot of that thyroid hormone to your baby. It's only around week 16 to 20, and you'll see the exact range argued back and forth in different studies, but around halfway through pregnancy that the fetus starts producing its own thyroid hormone. So it's entirely dependent on mom's thyroid levels. And that plays a really important role in brain development too. In fact, when you look at all the things that mess up brain development, and there's like a lot of chemicals that can get in the way they do so by interfering with thyroid hormone, with your thyroid gland, and thus your thyroid hormone levels. So it's important, yes. And especially if you know there is a pre-existing issue, um, then you want to be really on top of it, like you, (laughs) and get your levels tested right away. Because that ramp up in thyroid hormone production happens early on in, in the first trimester. Um, and then it usually reaches, they say, like a steady state somewhere in, in mid-pregnancy to late pregnancy. Although, you know, you do want to have your levels regularly assessed so you can make sure that, that your, your levels are appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do agree with the, the TSH of less than 2.5. What's interesting is that thyroid hormone levels, you know, if you can, like going to a specialist like you have or a reproductive endocrinologist, that's really helpful in this instance because the like optimal thyroid hormone levels of all the different hormones vary by trimester. And then when you try to look at like, well, where should they actually be? I mean, there's a reason I didn't put ranges in the book because you go to that like massive American thyroid association, whatever, Mm -hmm. um, document of, I don't remember how many pages, 700 pages or something. It's crazy. Once you read the fine print, they actually um, set trimester-specific ranges by location, hmm. by like 
geographic area because some of that relates to like the the you know endemic iodine deficiency that might be in certain parts of the world and then they set those um you know optimal or recommended ranges based on that it's kind of crazy and really confusing and probably should be better studied than it is <laughs> to be honest um but if you're working with a practitioner that doesn't know that some of these levels do change by trimester then they might not get your levels where they should be and when it comes to women with overt untreated hypothyroidism the rate of fetal loss is up to 60 percent and that's a lot <laughs> so yeah. it's definitely something to try to get tested and under control within you know within the first trimester if as part of your preconception planning, you have lab work drawn that includes a full thyroid panel, not just TSH and not just T4, but like a full thyroid panel. Um, then you can be working on optimizing that before conception. And they, at least for TSH, they recommend getting that below 2.5, arguably, arguably probably below two um, preconception. Um, but that is can play a really important role in, you know, the embryo development early on, your chances of miscarriage, and ultimately in, in brain development of your baby. Um, when it comes to nutrition for thyroid stuff, there's a lot of nutrients that are involved in maintaining thyroid health and uh, the production of thyroid hormones. Iodine, arguably, because it's part of the actual chemical structure of your thyroid hormones, is very important. Uh, iodine needs do go up by 50% during pregnancy, and that would happen very early on because that's right when your thyroid hormone production is going to be going up as well. So at minimum, you want to be getting um, 250 milligrams per day. There's some recommendations that say 290 milligrams, or sorry, micrograms, micrograms per day. Um, that would be a totally different dosage. So it's, it's <laughs> micrograms, sorry, yeah, CG. Um, a lot of prenatals don't contain any iodine. Around half of the ones available in the U.S. have no iodine. Um, unless you're somebody who regularly consumes a lot of seafood and seaweed, that would probably mean you're not getting enough. So you do want to look for a prenatal that has at least 250 micrograms of iodine a day. And then additional to that, you can also emphasize foods that are richer in iodine. So seafood, seaweed are going to be some of your best sources. In people who don't consume seafoods, the next best sources are eggs and dairy products. So another, another vote for eggs. Mm -hmm. um, iodized salt will give you some, but it's actually super variable. The iodine tends to dissipate and evaporate over time. So if you are going to use iodized salt as a source, you want to get it, buy it fresh and store it in an airtight container. So there's, it's not exposed to humidity and oxygen that would affect the iodine levels in it. Um, in addition to that, you have selenium being really important, particularly if you have any autoimmunity going on with the thyroid, such as Hashimoto's. Um, selenium does help to bring antibody levels down. And ironically, seafood and seaweed, where you get a lot of your iodine, you also get a lot of your selenium. So that's a good call. If it's a good prenatal, you should also have selenium in that prenatal as well, around 200 milligrams per day. You could go on and on about the nutrients involved in thyroid health because there's a lot. So vitamin D, vitamin A, iron, zinc. I mean, 
you name it, it's all related. We're all, it's, you know, all of these nutrients are, are important parts of our body. So a general nutrient dense diet is important. And if there is some level of autoimmunity going on, then it's arguable that you may benefit from avoiding gluten or other specific foods that might be irritating to your immune system or, or make your autoimmunity worse. And that's kind of hard to like define because your autoimmunity might be different during pregnancy and your tolerance to foods might be different. Um, but if you've had a chance to play around with that pre-pregnancy, that could be um, something to continue to, to do during pregnancy as well. And that's actually a very perfect segue into my next question, because I've been kind of considering, um, and we'll kind of talk about it from both sides, whether you have autoimmunity or not. Um, but like for, like you said, some people's immune systems kind of go to sleep and, you know, that's, I think I've been really lucky in that sense because everything seems to be really well regulated for the first time ever. Um, and I don't typically eat dairy. Um, but I have been eating, I wouldn't say a lot of dairy, but I've been eating, you know, a good amount of grass fed organic cheeses, um, mostly because I feel like that sounds really good. And so I'm kind of listening to what my body wants. Um, but I've also kind of heard some things about the likelihood that if you do not consume some of these foods that either maybe you're allergic to, or you just don't have in your diet, then that can maybe possibly lead to having your baby become allergic to these foods because they just have not been introduced to them at all. So things like gluten, I mean, I know a lot of people in this, um, you know, paradigm probably don't consume gluten regularly, if at all, especially with Hashimoto's. Um, so is there a point, do you think if your body can tolerate it and you're not physically reacting perhaps to introduce some of these foods just so that maybe baby isn't or become allergic to them? Is there any like sense or sensical? Yeah. Um, they, I mean, they, they, this kind of overlaps with the research on introducing foods to babies and whether you should introduce allergens early or wait for a year or two years. And in the past 10 years, the recommendations on that have flip-flopped from avoiding the introduction of, to allergic foods to pushing early introduction of allergic foods, giving things like peanut butter and eggs and shellfish and wheat and dairy within the first year of life. So you could probably argue both points and the research really is mixed until I get the guts to write a book on like baby food or toddler food or feeding kids, which I don't know if I'll ever do because that overlaps into parenting territory and right. I don't want to write a book on parenting. Right. Um, but you, you do see just different, different results from the study. So I don't know if we'll ever have it um, nailed down completely. I do think my, my, my personal uh, interpretation of the studies that I've read is that there is some benefit to exposing yourself to a variety of different foods during pregnancy because there, are, there is crosstalk via your immune system to your baby's immune system during pregnancy. I mean, for a lot of for for a lot of things, but food being one of them. So if you can tolerate it, sure, why not? I think particularly if there are nutritional benefits to consuming that particular food, then even more so to the hey, sure, why not? 
with dairy products, for example, I mentioned they're actually going to be a decent source of iodine for, especially for people who aren't consuming much seafood. So yeah, go for the dairy. I mean, you're also getting vitamin K2, which is important for calcium deposition, um, for your bone health and for your baby's skeletal development. That's important. You get probiotics. That's important. You get protein and B vitamins and, and a lot of different things in dairy products that I think are sort of glossed over when you go start going to like these autoimmune diets that just cross off so many different foods from your choices. With gluten, it's kind of arguable because, you know, there's not that much going on in wheat that and, and rye and barley that you can't get from other foods, nutritionally speaking, to have the immune exposure to baby. I mean, I could see the argument for that. Um, you know, at the time that I was pregnant, I was still most, I did a couple years where I was very strictly gluten-free because I had it show up on some food sensitivity testing. And uh, I was probably like 99% gluten-free other than what might have, I had maybe gotten from like a restaurant or something, probably a dozen, maybe 20 times over the course of pregnancy. We weren't eating out a whole lot at that time. Um, I was, I was pretty strictly gluten-free and my kid now is totally fine with gluten, no issues whatsoever yeah. <laughs> for better or for worse. It makes my life easy, but he, right. he loves his whole wheat sourdough with butter and, and he has, he's fine. His immune system is, is really good. His digestive health is really good. Um, you did ask in the case of celiac disease, I would still strictly avoid gluten in the case of celiac disease because you, right. you have a direct autoimmune condition that's related to gluten specifically. So like, yeah, keep up being strictly gluten-free if you have yeah. celiac disease. And that, that might be, not sure. be one of the autoimmunities that go into kind of remission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. But yeah, I know I've been kind of playing with just, or I've been, I'm trying to not be as strict because I don't react to it. It doesn't come up on any of my food sensitivities. Um, it's just solely for the kind of, you know, molecular mimicry that I've talked a lot about on the podcast with Hashimoto's right. and the thyroid. But I'm like, okay, these sweet potato fries were probably not done in a gluten-free gluten-free fryer. I'm going to eat those because right. I would like to get some of the cross-contamination without, you know, maybe eating like a few bites of bagel or pizza or something. Right. But I'm kind exactly. of yeah, play it safe and include it a little bit enough because I'm also having a boy. And so I just feel like I can just like see him in college <laughs> like eating pizza. But it's like, I don't want him to be allergic to it. Yeah. 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 I want him to be able to probably, you know, obviously I'm going to raise him gluten-free as much as I can, but I don't want him to have to be allergic to anything. No one wants that. And I think a lot of this stuff, you know, it's multifactorial. I don't think it's just food. It's also, you know, gut health and the microbiome and you know, that's being transferred to baby the whole pregnancy. Yeah, the, the biggest uh, impact on microbiome is, is mode of delivery, how you birth. The vaginal micro, microflora is definitely the biggest inoculator of, of the infant gut, but the placenta has its own microbiome. Amniotic fluid is not sterile. There is transfer of bacteria happening the whole pregnancy, which definitely influences the, the uh, immune system health of baby. You can look at vitamin D, the research on vitamin D or vitamin A, like those, that status and nutrient status in mother can affect the immune development of baby. So it's just, it's multifactorial. I don't think we have all our answers of just like, you know, 
it being a food thing, the risk right. of allergies. Of course, yeah. there's also genetic things too, which, yeah, we have some epigenetic control over our environment, but there are also things that are hereditary for better or for worse. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. <laughs> this sponsor comes to you from the Oh So Good Company. Oh So Good makes delicious bone broths and paleo soups that are perfect for the fall and winter seasons. They are made from only the best ingredients and will always be responsibly raised, non-GMO, hormone-free, and organic. They closely work with a small group of family farms in Northern California and Oregon that raise animals in conditions beyond organic. Some of our favorite broths include their chicken, beef, and turkey, plus their soups are so convenient for a quick and nutrient-dense meal. Personal favorite must go to the butternut squash paleo soup. The Oh So Good Company perfectly aligns with the paradigm and message of this podcast because they are Whole30 approved, certified paleo, dairy-free, and gluten-free. They even have some AIP-friendly, autoimmune paleo-friendly broths as well. Super hard to find anywhere else. So to grab a discount for Oh So Good, you can go to ohsogoodbones.com and use the code NUTRITIONISH to save $15 on any order. So that's ohsogoodbones.com and use the code NUTRITIONISH. Okay, so to kind of switch the conversation a little bit back to um, gestational diabetes. Um, so there's different ways to take um, this screening um, for gestational diabetes. And my kind of thought before reading more into your book was that I was going to much prefer taking my um, OB had offered, because he's a little bit more holistic, the option to do a food glucose test, um, eating 50 uh, grams of sugar in food versus having to do the glucola. And then, you know, the more I started to think about it and then kind of backed up by her um, studies as well is that maybe that's not actually, you know, a like for like trade. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the reasons maybe not to take the glucola test based on the poor ingredients. <laughs> um, you know, the GMOs, artificial things, but then on the flip side, is there a reason, okay, yes, this is a really accurate way of testing and maybe, you know, there's not really a good replacement for that. So the tricky thing about the glucola or the glucose tolerance test, they are different names for the same thing, is that it has been the most studied and like verified way to diagnose gestational diabetes. Same time, I don't love the test in some instances because you can run into false positives or potentially false negatives. Um, some of that can be influenced by, by the type of diet that you eat. And then also you mentioned the ingredient quality issue or just like the gigantic glut of sugar that you would be consuming at one point, which if you're not regularly consuming juices or smoothies or large amounts of fruit or soda or candy or pastries, like if you're not regularly consuming a 50 to 100 gram hit of sugar all at one time, that might be a lot for you and might leave you feeling kind of ill. So maybe it's not the best option for some of those people. Um, and certainly the food dyes, the preservatives, the, you know, sourcing of dextrose from genetically modified corn, like these are all valid reasons to not want to take the glucola. Um, I do think it is a, a good test for a lot of people for a lot of reasons, but I don't think it's the only test option. Um, the 
some of the alternatives that people want to go for instead of doing the glucola for a lot of these reasons that we mentioned before is doing something like a test meal or drinking fruit juice or doing jelly beans or some kind of candy. And the problem with those things is that they are an imperfect replacement for the test. Like the reason they use the glucola is that it's standardized to contain a very specific gram amount of glucose. If you do jelly beans, usually it's not pure glucose. It's not liquid. It's a solid. So it takes a different amount of digesting. Even when you look at the one study that people always quote as saying the jelly bean test is just as good as the glucola, they actually sent the specific brand of jelly beans to a lab to quantify the amount of simple sugars that were in that would provide the right dosage. They were trying to get a 50 gram dosage. It actually turned out to be the amount of jelly beans to give you 50 grams of simple sugars provided 72 grams of total carbohydrates. So if you're looking at a label trying to, oh, I just need to meet 50 grams, 50 grams, like you might actually be dosing it inaccurately. Moreover, that was that specific brand of jelly beans. We don't know how the formulation of all these different jelly bean brands are. Would it be 70, 73 grams of total carbohydrates or 80 grams of total, total carbohydrates? Or maybe you have a brand of jelly beans where it is a perfect match for 50 grams of total carbohydrates and all of those are simple sugars. I don't know because we didn't send them to a lab. So it's just not accurate when the deciding between the diagnosis or not diagnosis comes down to a one point difference in your blood sugar levels. Um, likewise with juice, you're looking at different types of sugars that are found in the juice. So fruit juice isn't pure glucose. It has fructose and glucose and a number of other different sugars, which all have a different glycemic index and thus a different effect on your blood sugar levels. So that's, it's just not a one for one trade. The test meal, you run into the same issues, even more so probably than the juice and the jelly beans, because if you're doing a mixed meal that contains fat and protein as well, then those affect the glycemic load of the meal. The types of carbohydrates that you choose to have at the meal will affect the glycemic impact. It just, if you're going to bother for any type of alternative, like if you, if you don't want to do the glucola, then just measure your blood sugar at home and include several meals within your time period of testing that are higher carb. Include some meals that are 50 grams and 75 grams or maybe even 100 grams of carbs and see what your blood sugar response is. Then you're not just getting like a single time point reaction and not a single reaction to whatever that specific meal composition is, but you're getting multiple data points that you can make use of. So I think that makes way more sense for anyone who doesn't want to do a standardized test, don't do like an unstandardized version that gives you incorrect information. Just test your blood sugar at home and get, a, get an idea of your real world response to a variety of um, different meal types and carbohydrate amounts over the course of a week or two and, and go from there. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a lot more sense because I mean, even consuming fruit, I always recommend to my clients, like pair it with a healthy fat, pair it with an almond butter if you're eating an apple. So you can kind of control a little bit of that blood sugar. And so if you're doing, I think some of the diets that I've heard about, I think are more like, you know, a piece of bread, some eggs, some juice, a banana, like you're including all these different types of food. And so your body is breaking them down differently. They're going to be absorbed differently. So it's just, 
Yeah. yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense when I really think about everything I know in terms of digestion. It's just it's just not standardized. I think that's the problem is you're trying to like get a very standardized result from like a very unstandardized test. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the difference in size of banana could make a difference of like 15 <laughs> grams of carbohydrates or more for for that meal. Like unless you're using a gram scale and comparing the weight of like the peeled banana flesh to nutrient tables. I mean, it's like, even then it could depend on the variety of banana and the ripeness and all that. Like you have a greener banana, there's more resistant starch, which is going to not be as big of a glycemic impact as like a overripe banana that has brown spots all over it. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's just, it's just not, it's just not standardized. I think um, there are some people who have opted to sort of, do the glucola, but do it with like non-GMO dextrose that you could purchase on Amazon and then measure that out on a gram scale and mix it with eight ounces of water. Then you're like getting the glucola, but not all the junk that most people who don't want to do the glucola want to avoid. (laughs) Then you are kind of, then you are actually doing a a standardized version of it just without junk in it. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you can do the, the lemon lime flavor tends not to have as much garbage ingredients it doesn't have food dyes it usually doesn't have brominated vegetable oil um, sometimes you can find them actually without preservatives as well so you can always ask your ob office and actually look at the label of it i know i did yeah and i was gonna say there's i think you wrote right a two-part blog post about um your experience with all of this right so i can link to that in the show notes if yes. you think it's helpful <laughs> yes well yeah and i ended up doing kind of a hybrid version. There are different ways to do glucose tolerance tests. And the way the U.S. does it is, most of the U.S. does it, is like very behind. Other countries mostly do a a single 75 gram two-hour glucose tolerance test performed fasting. And in the U.S., they do a two-part test where you do a screening test of 50 grams. And if you fail that, you do a follow-up test of 100 grams of glucose performed fasting, and then they have you sit in the office for three full hours to do three blood draws at one, two, and three hours to see where you're at. So um, I ended up doing a bit of a, a bit of a hybrid because I did agree to do the 50 gram glucose challenge test um, and then declined to do a 100 gram glucose tolerance test and instead did home blood sugar monitoring because I knew that would give me more information. And I had a sneaking suspicion that my low-carb diet had uh, played a role in my results on the one-hour test. So, uh, yeah, that whole, dis- that whole saga is, uh, is on the blog. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know, is it really worth going into all of the other things? Maybe it's one time. It's not that bad. You get the results you need. I don't know. <laughs> it's true. If... If you are consuming a, a moderate amount of carbohydrates, like you need in order for the test results to be accurate, you need to be consuming at least 150 grams of carbs per day for at least a week or so leading up to any glucose tolerance test. So that's something to consider if you're not willing to go off of low carb or, you know, yeah, for whatever reason that like doesn't appeal to you. Maybe you want to consider just testing your blood sugar at home and seeing what your your response is. I don't think the glucose tolerance test is like a bad test. I think people think that because I talk about alternatives and I talk about 
some of the downsides of it. It's not that it's a bad test. I just don't think it's the right test for all people. And I think we should be presented with all the alternatives so you have some degree of informed consent. The thing is, it's just the most standardized way to test for gestational diabetes. It's the most vetted in the research. So that's what most clinicians are going to do. Got it. And then last little question here, we'll finish up with kind of an easier, quick question. Um, but your best tips for digestion and elimination. Um, I have tried to do, again, tried <laughs> doing some research on digestive enzymes and what might be okay versus not okay. Because um, in my opinion, I'm just trying to kind of limit the things that I take in terms of supplements just because there isn't really a definitive answer. So some of the digestive enzymes um, that I had been taking prior to getting pregnant had ox bile in them, um, which is really good for the gallbladder, um, you know, a variety of other things when it's processing fat, for example. But I kind of chose personally to take that out. So I did find one that was just a plant-based digestive enzyme. But do you have any kind of tips on what you think about you know, what is best for digestion, any things that maybe are like, definitely avoid that. <laughs> Specifically to supplements. Yeah, supplements or, um, I mean, I think, of course, you have read too that, you know, apple cider vinegar, don't do that because it's raw and unfiltered. I mean, I, I've yeah, been doing it. I think it's fine. It's, that's silly. <laughs> yeah, you know, I get asked all sorts of bizarre questions um, especially in like social media messages. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, are many people concerned about apple cider vinegar? I don't know. I don't know why you would be concerned. It is so acidic that you're not going to be growing pathogenic bacteria in it. I mean, it's fermented by lactic acid bacteria. And once the lactic and acetic acid levels are high enough, you're going to crowd out any pathogens. So uh, no, you're not going to get food poisoning from raw <laughs> apple cider vinegar. Um, and yes, you do provide enzymes. And yes, you will boost your stomach acidity, which is actually a good thing for digestion of proteins, absorption of B12 and minerals, and, and again, crowding out pathogens from, from your digestive tract. So I don't see an issue with apple cider vinegar. Um, you don't even mention it here, but likewise, I don't see an issue for kombucha either you know oh, yeah. percent okay. alcohol is like really really low but it's another like raw fermented beverage that people are concerned about i think mostly from the alcohol content but mm -hmm. the alcohol content is so low it's like a lower percent alcohol than you find in some types of overripe fruit like you are good it's okay you can have <laughs> some kombucha um digestive enzymes i think can be taken on an as-needed basis uh you know no I don't have any concerns over that specifically. I don't know why they would be harmful because usually with digestive enzymes, you're, you're taking enzymes that your body also produces. So why would that, I don't see a contraindication. I also don't see a contraindication to ox bile if it's needed, um, especially if there's a history of any sort of gallbladder issues. I just, I don't see why that would be I don't see why I don't that know. would be a it problem. It like a, an ingredient that I was like, I don't know, I'm just going to avoid it. <laughs> like yeah, for I mean, lack of better, like having to do the research and not finding the answer I wanted. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you would actually find research on it. I just can't <laughs> theoretically think of why it would be harmful. It's sort of like the research on 
I think when people get really concerned about supplements, and by the way, I think that's like a good place to go for, like minimize your overall amount of supplements and extra things you're taking, especially anything that's an unknown, just if in doubt, leave it out. Um, but I think most of the concern over supplements is like going to excessive levels on certain nutrients because our, our nutrient levels are, are interrelated. Um, ox bile would not be a nutrient or potentially being exposed to harmful compounds in something like an herb. There's a lot of unknowns about herbs during pregnancy and even the, the best herbal experts are very like, they have a very pared down list of herbs that they recommend during pregnancy because there are so many unknowns. Oxbile wouldn't fit into the, the herbal category. So I, I don't see why it would be harmful. I think if on an as needed basis would be fine. Um, and then you ask about magnesium. Yeah, I was just curious, magnesium citrate versus glycinate, because um, I know some people can deal with more constipation during pregnancy, um, but magnesium just in itself is a really good nutrient, um, I think important, that maybe we don't get a ton from food perhaps, depending, but um, yeah, is there citrate versus glycinate, citrate being more kind of diuretic, if that's helpful, but is there one that you think pregnancy-wise is, I would lean towards this versus this? Yeah. So the magnesium citrate tends to be a, a bit more of an osmotic laxative. It's not as well absorbed as something like magnesium glycinate. Certainly better absorbed than like magnesium sulfate or magnesium oxide, which would give you a terrible case of diarrhea. Um, citrate is somewhere in the middle. So if you need help with motility or you're experiencing constipation, I think magnesium citrate could be something you could consider um, to help with that. Although I think there's a lot of other things digestive wise you could work on like more fat, more salt, more fluids, more vegetables, um, more vegetable and fruit based fibers or chia seeds in your diet. Like there's other things that you could work on uh, for constipation, but magnesium citrate is certainly a, another, another thing in the, in the uh, pile of ideas to try. Uh, <laughs> Magnesium glycinate does tend to be my recommendation because it is better absorbed and because glycine is an essential, becomes an essential amino acid during pregnancy, I should say, to be nutritionally correct. <laughs> um, and a lot of people aren't meeting their glycine needs from food or other places. So you're getting like, you're not getting a ton of glycine from a dose of magnesium glycinate, but you're getting some. And it's super well absorbed. So you may as well take it. Um, a lot of people like that it doesn't cause digestive upset or loose stools like magnesium citrate or some of the other forms. So if your motility is really good already, then you probably do want a really well absorbed magnesium and, and not have the runs as <laughs> a yeah. side effect. So. <laughs> Makes sense. Well, perfect. That's kind of all the questions that I had. I think we maybe got a really good variety of topics. <laughs> we did. Um, is there anything else? Um, well, can, I'd love for you to um, let people know just where um, they can find more about you, um, your website. We'll link all of that in the show notes, but um, both your books, anything else um, that we can do to learn from you? 
Yeah. Well, um, for people who haven't yet read my book, but just want a, a taste of it, if you go over to lilynicholsrdn.com or realfoodforpregnancy.com, you can download the first chapter for free. So that'll give you a bit more background information about why real food makes sense, um, what are some of the pitfalls of a conventional prenatal nutrition based diet and like why I bothered <laughs> doing all this research on this and, and presenting an, an alternative approach to, to prenatal nutrition. So that's on either of those sites or you can check me out on my usual social media channels. I'm most active these days on Instagram and I'm at Lily Nichols RDN. Perfect. And you also recorded, I know a few or probably a handful of other episodes on other wellness podcasts as well. I would definitely recommend finding her on those. Um, yes. So I have a press page on Lily Nichols RDN slash press, and that links uh, the interviews and guest posts that I've been on. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a long list. So just sort through and decide which thing sounds, sounds most fun. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. We'll link all of that in the show notes. Cause I know that I've listened to every other episode you've recorded and they're all a little bit different. So lots of really good fun information. Well, thank you so much for being here. This was so helpful. I know for myself, even having read the book and I know it's going to be so helpful for everybody else out there as they either plan for pregnancy or not even, I feel like, like you said, it's kind of just, it's a really good book just to overall <laughs> learn how to be well in general. Yeah. So people are like, how do you eat regularly? I'm like the same as in the book. <laughs> the, the same, like I ate the same before pregnancy, ate the same during pregnancy, I ate the same after pregnancy. My husband eats the same. My kid eats mostly the same, depending on what sort of nitpicky toddler eating habits are going on at the time. But yeah, it's a good way to eat for for everyone. And uh, and good luck on the rest of your pregnancy. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we will be in touch. And you guys don't forget to check out the show notes for all the information on Lily. We will see you guys next week.